Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, just before we begin, I wanted to take a short minute to talk to you about how you can get your hands on something new from the Welsh History Podcast. Thanks to Tee Public, we have a new online store. From t-shirts, stickers, hats, and everything in between, you can find them there. So have a look around, and you can do that at tpublic, that's T-E-E public.com forward slash stores forward slash Welsh dash history dash podcast. Thanks, everybody, and on with the show. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 154, Another Twist to the Crown. In August of 1469, just weeks after their control of the kingdom, Warwick and Clarence ran into their first real crisis. A branch of the northern Nevilles rebelled against the crown, showing support for Henry VI, which put Warwick in enough of a bind that he was forced to release Edward from his house arrest. From the summer of 1469 to the spring of 1470, disaster after disaster followed Warwick and Clarence as Edward, slowly but surely, turned the tide against them. Initially, after the death of William Herbert, Warwick seized much of the Welsh titles and positions that once belonged to his rival. If Warwick thought he would run the kingdom like Duke Richard did during his protectorate, he was proven very mistaken. Edward continued to put his own supporters in positions of authority, keeping Warwick and his victorious side out of the levers of power. The Duke of Gloucester, Edward's brother Richard, was put in charge of, as Chief Justice of North Wales and Chief Steward of the Principality in November of 1469. Edward had considered Richard to be strong enough in his court to give him control of all of Herbert's holdings including taking care of the earldom of Pembroke, which William's heir was not old enough to look after himself. Certainly a sign that the turn was officially on against Clarence and Warwick. Meanwhile, old associates of Herbert, like Sir Roger Vaughan, were placed in positions of authority in Wales. The Duke of Gloucester, at 17, had become a trusted ally for King Edward, and he used that alliance to build a bulwark in Wales. Gloucester relished the role and took to it well. The king, however, tried to mollify Warwick by marrying his four-year-old Princess Elizabeth to his rival's son. It was hoped that this would create ties that would allow the Nevilles to save face while giving the king back some control. If that was the plan, it failed pretty thoroughly over the coming years. In March of 1470, another rebellion happened in England. Two feuding northern families saw their disagreement spill into blood across the country. 
The king once again marched north to try and regain control of the situation. Instead, the two lords then turned on the king, and in turn, Warwick, ever the opportunist, threw his lot in with these rebels. It was a mark of the desperation that was assailing him and Clarence, since this half-baked rebellion had little chance. Edward certainly would be out for blood this time if those two once again failed to deal with him. George, Duke of Clarence, once again had said he was on the king's side while trying to kill him at the same moment. How he survived all of this treachery is probably the most amazing part of this entire war. As a reminder, what we discussed previously, Warwick had not had the favor of the Yorkist nobility, and somehow continued to try and gain their favor by constantly going against them in this period. But the writing was on the wall. Edward still controlled the Yorkist side, and Warwick was increasingly isolated in England. The Northern Rebellion collapsed when the leading figure, Lord Wells, was captured, and the king demanded his forces stand down, or he would be executed. Wells's relations were forced to do just that. The Lincolnshire Rebellion fully collapsed when they were routed at Stamford on March 12th. The defeat saw the rebels fleeing the field in such a hurry that they took their armor and even their clothes off to speed them in their escape. Warwick and Clarence once again were forced to flee, this time back to France. Some academics have posited that at some point in 1470, Warwick realized that Clarence was not ready to be king. His tendency to betray whatever party he disagreed with at the time and his general inability to create support left his father-in-law at a point where he felt he was at loose ends. Stuck in France, he turned to his erstwhile ally, Louis XI. The French king wanted his Anglo-French alliance bad enough that he did what no side had been able to do to this point. He brought the kingmaker back into the Lancastrian fold. Kicking and screaming, no doubt, but Warwick and Queen Margaret's enemy still sat on the throne. It was time to make peace with the enemy of my enemy, as you might say. On June 22, 1470, the two parties hashed out an agreement. Warwick's youngest daughter, Anne, would marry Prince Edward, the son of Henry VI and Margaret. That would link the two old rivals together in matrimony and create an alliance needed to carry out the return of the Lancastrians to the throne. Jasper Tudor, no longer a bystander to the machinations of various parties, was now a cave figure in the Lancastrian cause, one of the few survivors of the early days who had connections to be a voice in the Hall of Power, at least the Halls of the Dispossessed Powers. Tudor, Warwick, Clarence, and the Earl of Oxford landed at Devon in early September, announcing their support for the old king and the return of Henry to the throne of England. Edward, for his part, was distracted dealing with issues in the north, which had continued to convulse under various rebellions during the summertime. The king was aware to some degree of the plans by his enemies and had warned his nobles of the possibility of invasion coming from various locations on the coast. The arrival of this small force in the southwest immediately sent Edward on a path to London. He must have known he was in big trouble. Unlike the previous uprisings, by Warwick, this time with Lancastrian support, many nobles with grievances against Edward joined the fight. 
Soon, the rebels began to swell with troops as they headed to London to free Henry. The odds were now firmly against Edward, and he knew it. Every other time, key persons in those circumstances would have likely gone on to fight a hopeless battle, which would lead to their death and destruction, and everything they had tried to do would go with it. King Edward was not made from that cloth. He knew he was about to go to his death if he took on the Lancastrians and his former ally on the field. So he, like Jasper Tudor before him, fled the field with haste. He left so quickly his wife and children were left behind, fleeing to sanctuary at Westminster Abbey. It would be here that his son, Edward, confusingly, as there are so many of them in this particular story, would be born on November 2nd. For the first time in nearly a decade, the Lancastrians had won a major victory. Admittedly, one not really fought on the field of battle, but nonetheless, they held the field and, most importantly, the country. King Henry was returned to the throne in early October. He was now 48, and in the last nine years, these had not been good ones for him. In captivity, his mental capacity and physical ability had diminished. He was a shell of the man who once led Love Day. The benefactors of Warwick's return now dealt with new issues. One of the reasons the King Magicker had turned was the drop in his power. Do you trust this Yorkist if the Lancastrians he dispossessed are given back the lands and responsibilities he himself craved? The answer to that question would determine a kingdom. Queen Margaret might owe this man everything but hate him nonetheless. They likely both knew that as long as King Edward still lived, they needed each other. But the moment he died, then all hell would likely break loose. Jasper Tudor, for his own part, had issues that he needed to deal with during the autumn of 1470. He collected Henry Tudor from his wardship with the Herberts and took him with him to London for the November session of Parliament and a meeting with his mother and with his cousin. Henry, now 13, closing in on the age of inheritance, and Margaret, his mother, wanted to make sure that he received his lands and entitled properties. She had not fought this long for him to fall by the wayside while various parties fought over their portions. Hope must have been high at this point. With King Henry back on the throne and the Lancastrians back in charge, it must have seemed like they would only be a matter of time before Henry, Jasper, and for that matter, his mother, were back in control of all that they had lost. The Tudors would likely be surprised at how wrong this hope was when they were set on the shoulders of their old king. Later chroniclers would give too much prophecy to the meeting of Henry VI and Henry Tudor, the future Henry VII. The idea that he was the boy of prophecy with Henry playing the role of Vortigern to Henry's Arthur must have seemed very poetic. It would, of course, make sense to give this first English king of the Renaissance some good old-fashioned medieval biblical origins. In reality, King Henry was no longer in a position to give advice or to help anyone. His mental state was said to be that of a child. Too much war, too much difficult life had led the bookish religious king to a mental breaking point. He might have, at times, had lucidity, but they were likely to be few and far between. It was his wife Margaret and their teenage son Edward that now effectively ruled the kingdom. 
Burgundy had been under pressure from France and Louis had been putting pressure on his English allies to live up to their end of their alliance. The deal with Margaret definitely created difficulties for Warwick, not alone with the fact that the King of France was holding the crown prince and his mother in France until they met their end of the bargain. In February of 1471, England actually came into the war on the side with France, much to the shock of the London merchants who had a lucrative trade pact with the Burgundian Low Countries. In Burgundy, Edward, for his part, was not sitting idly in exile. His Burgundian allies welcomed him, and with Charles the Bold, the two men planned out how Edward would get his kingdom back. Obviously, Charles could not be actively seen as doing this, but nonetheless, he was almost as clearly on his side as you could be. On March 11, 1471, King Edward, with the support of 36 Burgundian warships and 1,200 men, arrived in Yorkshire, and in fact in Warwick's lands. Edward, for his part, outmaneuvered Warwick, who had tried to finish off the Yorkist king in the north. It was during these cat-and-mouse movements that the biggest betrayal once again threw things into chaos. George, Duke of Clarence, brother of Edward, son-in-law to Warwick, the so-called ally for nearly five years, betrayed him and rejoined King Edward's side, bringing with him 4,000 men. This was likely due to Clarence being politically neutered in the new regime, something Clarence would not tolerate. Family or not, he did not want to play second or third fiddle in the court of Henry VI. This was a man who had ambitions to be king himself, after all. On April 11th, Edward once again reached London. Welcomed with open arms, he immediately forced Lancastrian supporters to flee. King Henry was once again sent back to the Tower of London, and then trotted out only when Edward was facing the Lancastrians a few days later. Edward had tactically acted as if he only wanted to be Duke of York once more, that he wasn't trying to overthrow the kingdom at this point. It went so far as to actually wear the markings of Lancastrians while marching around the northern part of the kingdom. Edward, now supported again by a powerful force, looked to exact his final revenge on his former ally. Warwick has now become the hunted. Easter Sunday of 1471, Warwick and his forces north of Barnet faced off against Edward and Clarence and their supporters. The fight began at dawn, somewhere around 4 a.m. In colliding, the left side of Edward crumbled as they were outnumbered by Warwick's forces. In the chaos, cannon fire, fog, and screams of and death led to confusion and little knowledge. In this mire, King Edward was said he could see little other than that which was in front of him. His entire concentration focused on the small square that he could see and the little he could do to affect the battle. Warwick, as well went to the battle on foot, apparently goaded to do so by his brother to show his manliness. Without a horse to help in his ability to escape, he would find out that the battle would run quite differently. For hours, the two sides raged against each other. By 8 a.m., four hours later, it was over. 
The battle left thousands dead. More Lancastrians and Yorkist nobles died in the fighting, and key among them was the Earl of Warwick. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply and his brother. King Edward returned to London with his puppet king and victory. The kingmaker was dead, and now only one major force was left to oppose him. One rather odd ally had now joined him in this fight. Henry Stafford, husband of Margaret Beaufort, and in name only, stepfather to Henry Tudor. Stafford must have realized he was in a bind when Edward took London and knew that he would be best off if he supported the king who was present at this point, rather than the one in Potentia. This would give Margaret the cover she needed to help her son in the coming years against the run of much of what was going on in England. One group of Lancastrians had not yet made their way to England. Queen Margaret and Prince Edward were still in Normandy which likely caused more grief for Warwick's side, and it was only after Easter and after good weather was found on the channel that they were able to leave. The loss of Warwick was likely seen as a bit of a fortune. First, it drained Edward of some of his troops and also eliminated a powerful force for Margaret to deal with after the war. The earls of Somerset and Devon were still largely looked looking to bring troops to bear for the Queen, and Jasper Tudor had been in Wales, drumming up more support as well. The Lancastrians would now face Edward and his allies with no need to compromise with those that they hated. The Queen and her forces arrived in southwest England once again, sneaking past Edward's forces. 
For his part, the king's troops rolled out, following as best they could the queen in an attempt to head the Lancastrian forces off before they reached the Severn. If the Tudor's Welsh forces arrived in time to join the queen, Edward would be in deep trouble. He'd be outnumbered and likely outflanked. He had to stop them now in Gloucestershire. At Tewkesbury, the queen finally stopped, trying to take over a town that was blocking her path, and with little to no provisions, she was forced to camp for the night. Forced to stop, it allowed Edward to gather his forces together to try and oppose her. On May 4th, the two sides seemed to be in opposite positions. Edward was the one on the back foot, forced into a confrontation. Somehow, through this war, it has proved time and time again, just because you were at a disadvantage, it meant very little in the long run. Somerset, leading the armies of the Queen, had defenses that were in better positions with better angles on the coming battle. But even with all of those advantages, a hail of arrows would attack them in such a way that it would actually force Somerset's hand. He had to move his troops into the king's army rather than wait them out behind his defenses. In the process of doing that, he ended up getting cut off by a sneak pincer movement. A number of men-at-arms were hidden in forests not far away, and they outflanked him. They were then outfought, and to this point, most of the Lancastrians would be slaughtered. In a fit of anger, even those that fled to the Abbey for Sanctuary were captured or killed outright over the protestations of that bishop of the Abbey. Prince Edward was cut down as he fled the battlefield, ending the last Lancastrian monarch's line. Somerset and the other nobles were killed by Edward, and the majority of the forces were comprehensively destroyed. Queen Margaret was finally captured. On May 21st, Edward returned to London in victory. The war was over. Henry VI died in the Tower of London later that day in what would, could only be called suspicious circumstances. His wife would be imprisoned for four years in the Tower of London and eventually ransom back to King Louis XI to live out her day as a widow and a childless in Anjou. Jasper Tudor had fled to Chepstow in the aftermath of the defeat, unable to do anything to help his own side. Whatever support he tried to drum up had come to nothing. Fearing the wrath of King Edward, and with no support in the higher parts of the court, he needed to escape. It was time to survive. Roger Vaughan, who we'd mentioned earlier, the Welsh loyalist of Edward, was sent to arrest Tudor. Jasper and his nephew were the last real links to the Lancastrian throne, thanks to being well-informed. Jasper turned the tables on his father's killer, capturing him and having Roger executed. It was said that Roger asked for mercy, which Jasper is said to have replied, he should have such favor as what he offered his father. And with that, Roger was executed. Now Jasper had more reason to escape, because not only had he disobeyed the king and been a key part in fighting him, he now had executed a person who was lawfully supposed to arrest him. Time was now running out for Jasper, 
and with that, he fled to Pembroke in the hopes of keeping himself and his family safe from further harm. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can always reach out to me on Twitter or follow me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. Or if you would like to join us on Facebook, you can do so at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And as well, if you would like to, you are by no obligation have to. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. Thank you everyone for listening. Have yourselves a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.